Um, we all know that some things look great on the surface, but they're not nearly, they don't look nearly as good when you look underneath the surface, underneath. For example, in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, radar was picking up a large formation of planes on their way to Hawaii, which of course was the first wave of attacks on Pearl Harbor. And, and uh, the officer on duty said, don't worry about it, it's nothing. Uh, U.S. President uh, William McKinney in August 1901, just days before he was assassinated, he said to reporters, I have, nothing, I have no enemies, I have nothing to fear. Then uh, famously, the CEO of a, of a company called Digital Equipments, have you heard of this company, Digital Equipments? They said this in 1977, there's no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. I don't think that company exists anymore. Of course, of course, sometimes the opposite is true. Things might not look good on the surface, but underneath, they're very, very good. In 1954, a, a club manager told Elvis Presley at one of his first performances in, in Nashville, Tennessee, you ain't going nowhere, kid. You ought to go back to driving truck. In Germany, a schoolteacher told 10-year-old Albert Einstein, you won't amount to much. And then in 1958, a CBS producer said to Barbara Walters, with your voice, no one's going to let you broadcast. So things are, are, are not always as they seem, and it can be a little confusing for us. And so this, in the next three, eight, eight, eight weeks or so, we're going to be doing a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's the basis for the book of the name, same name, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I hope that many of you will be reading that book as well as the devotional. But the main idea of the book is this. Emotionally healthy spirituality... Uh, Emotional health and contemplative uh, spirituality must be brought together to have emotionally healthy spirituality. It's a mouthful for a preacher here, guys. Emotional, healthy spirituality. And when these two are, are brought together, they offer nothing short than a spiritual revolution in our lives, transforming places deep beneath the surface of our lives. Today we're going to talk about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Over the next few weeks, we'll go over seven sections, all found in, in separate chapters of the book. Themes will include know yourself, that you may know God, going back in order to go forward, journeying to the wall. We, uh, we're going to have a week on, on an enlarging your soul through grief and loss, uh, discovering the rhythms of the daily office and Sabbath, growing into emotionally mature adults, and then finally going the next step to develop a rule of life. And we'll use this familiar image of an iceberg. You know, similar to our lives, shows just kind of 10% of its mass above the surface of the water. That's what everybody sees. That's kind of just the behaviors. But it's the, the things underneath the sur surface, those invisible things that come out when we're, we're stressed or when we're pressured. Here's the thing, folks. Jesus isn't content with just changing the 10% of, above the surface of the water. He wants to transform all 100% of our lives. He wants to do that. And so we're going to dive deep this fall. These, these eight themes we're going to look at are, are quite profound, but they're not, they're not really difficult to understand. It's another thing entirely, though, to, to actually implement them, to actually kind of work them out in your lives, where, where it actually changes the way you live, the way you see God, the way you follow Jesus and the way you actually make decisions in your everyday life. What we're after as a church is to integrate this more deeply into who we are, I believe, 
this is God's time for us. Um, let me say, it is going to take work. It's going to take meditation and, and pondering, and, and I encourage you to talk about it and to think about it and to process it. Work it out in your small groups as well as in your individual lives. This is not like, like throwing just some icing on your cake. Um, three years ago, we, we worked through this material with some of the leaders in this church, and, and I remember one of the leaders, I'll never forget, uh, after we did this course, he said this is trans- had transformed him. It began a journey of transformation in his life that was far beyond anything that had happened up till that point since he became a Christian. And so I believe it, it's going to change us. It has the, the possibility to change us. And let me say it might involve changing habits, un- unhealthy habits that you've kind of carried through most of your life. But I believe it's where God is calling us. And so let's dive in and talk about emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Before we do, let's pray. Would you, would you bow your heads with me? So Jesus, we, we hear that you are not content to kind of just leave us to ourselves with the baggage that we carry. And, and you're not content to, to let us sit in emotional unhealth. And you want to grow us up and you want to mature us into to whole, healthy beings, followers of you. And so we pray this morning that you might do this completely in our lives. You might begin to, to get after those things we might tend to avoid. Give us courage to face these things and to have honest conversations about them. And we now commit ourselves to you as a church as we embark on this journey into emotionally healthy spirituality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pete Scazzaro, the author of this book, says this about emotionally unhealthy spirituality. He says, I've lived it full force for the first 19 years of my life. I became a Christian at 19, but for the next 17 years as a Christian, the, the truth was the gospel didn't extend very deep beneath my own iceberg. I continued to live on the surface. A lot of things were, were changing, but I was unhealthy. I embraced it. I lived it. I experienced its destructive effects. And I think it's part of what God has, has used in my own life to begin to show me some things. It's, it's a very slow process for me to come out of that into some health, and I'm still working on it. Uh, Pete isn't the first person to live an emotionally unhealthy life. Let's look at this morning at Saul. We're going to look at a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Saul, he's probably one of the unhealthiest examples in Scripture of someone whose lack of emotional health and, and lack of contemplative life brought such destruction to his life from what we read of his story Saul was someone of great promise he had a a great future there was this chosenness there was this anointing on his life to be someone and to do something for God and he started out very well he had these very humble beginnings but but things didn't go so well we're going to pick up the story in in first Samuel 15 chapter uh, 15 verse 20 in this account, uh, Samuel is given, I mean, Saul is given a command by God to muster together the armies of Israel, you know, gather together these hundreds of thousands of troops and go against the Amalekites and wipe them out, bringing God's judgment upon them. The prophet Samuel brings this message from, from, from God to Saul to go and obedient, be obedient and do this, and Saul goes. He goes on this mission, and what he does is he partially obeys. He musters the armies of, of Israel. He goes on this mission, but he, he doesn't do all of it. He does most of it. 
In verse 9, it tells us that instead of wiping out all the sheep and the cattle and the king and all the Amalekites, this is what it says, Saul and the army spared Agag, that was the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Why didn't Saul totally obey God, fully obey God? Uh, I I wonder, practically speaking, it didn't make sense. I mean, uh, you know, from a financial perspective, there there was wealth to be had here, the the sheep and the the lambs and the goats and all that kind of stuff, the, the financial resources, politically, Maybe it didn't make sense. Wiping out the Amalekites, you, you cr- just create maybe more, more enemies. So he made this pragmatic decision and, and just didn't go all the way with God. I don't even know if he felt guilty about it. He probably felt, hey, at least I went. You know, what, what more do you want from me? And then the prophet Samuel shows up on the scene. Uh, Saul's response to Samuel in verse 13 is, The Lord bless you. I've, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. As far as Saul is concerned, everything is hunky-dory. I've done God's will. He just can't see it. The amazing thing about Saul is that on, on the surface of his life, in that, that one-tenth of his, his life that everybody can see, everything looks great. If you're around him as one of his counselors or his friends or his soldiers or companions, he looks good. He, lo- he just looks like a good church-going follower of God. And he looks like a great Christian. But underneath the surface, things aren't so good. And that's why it makes for, for such a, a classic example of, of emotionally unhealthy spirituality because he doesn't integrate the two, emotional health and contemplative spirituality into his life. His life is, is out of order underneath the surface where nobody sees it. Uh, again here, the, the argument is, is that you cannot separate emotional health and contemplative spirituality. they got to go together. And, and Saul never lets God... Uh, get beneath the surface of his iceberg. Not even once in his whole life, Saul never lets him in. Let's read verse 20. It says, But I did obey the Lord, Saul said, and I I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The, The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as as in as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. So what I want to do this morning is try to take this apart some and give you two basic characteristics of the, un, the emotionally unhealthy example of, of Saul, And I want to go after these characteristics, make some application to us, and this will launch us on our journey. The first thing Saul does as an emotionally unhealthy person here is he says no to reflection and and self-awareness. He's he's just not going down that road to be reflective and self-aware. He's praying, he's listening, he actually prophesied at some point. God, God has worked in his life. It's like he's going to church, he's doing worship, he's doing the whole thing. But underneath all that, he's concerned about what? The approval of people. In fact, that's the real theme in this text. Even when he repents, as he does twice, once in verse 24 and verse 30, listen to what he's concerned about. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. He wants Samuel to come back with him. Why? So he doesn't look bad in front of the people. 
this need for, for desire, this need and desire for approval is just so deep in him and he can't see it. He's unaware of how this fear is just dominating his life. Notice in, in verse 24, he actually admits it. He says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people. I was afraid. They, they wanted it so badly. I, I was afraid. And so I gave in to them. So Saul thought to himself, keep the, the best sheep and, and animals and use it as a sacrifice to God. And, and, and that's probably, a, maybe that's a good motive, but he is unaware and he's not reflective. He's got this, this deep, deep need for approval going on in his life. And there's this other deep theme that's going on as well, and that's the theme of jealousy. You read his story, you see this, especially when it comes to David. Young David comes along, you read about him in, in 1 Samuel as well. And, and uh, th- this is a big struggle for Saul. People start liking, liking David. David's a good leader, a good guy, young, young, young up, upstart. And Saul gets mad. In fact, in chapters 18 to 20 of 1 Samuel, this, this jealousy towards David, this jealousy that Saul has, gets so great that he tries to, to kill David six different times. I mean, he sends him once on, a, on an impossible mission. I mean, to, to kill 200 Philistines firsthand, single-handedly, and bring their foreskins back. It's a kind of an interesting little passage of Scripture there. I mean, three times he, he, he tries to kill him himself with his own hand with a javelin. One time he almost kills his own son because his son got in the way and tried to, tried to protect David. He's totally unaware of all this stuff going on inside him, and he's acting it out. His jealousy and, and envy get to the point where he can't even think straight. And here's the thing, in the middle of it all, he thinks he's doing God's will. I mean, that's the kicker. But he's got a lot of jealousy and envy going on inside of him. Um, can we relate to that today? Can we relate to that in our lives? I mean, we, we compare our lives to other people's lives, and we can feel a lot of jealousy and a lot of envy, can't we? I mean, it's so common. You know, I compare my marriage to somebody else's, and if it's better or easier or happier than mine... I'm miserable. You know, I compare my salary, my house, my career, my kids, my body, my looks, my, my education, my level of success. Here's the thing. When, when I envy somebody, not only am I unhappy because of what, they're not, what I'm not getting, I'm unhappy because of what they are getting, right? And I'd be less miserable if they were more miserable. Maybe you heard this story. A woman dies, she goes to the gates of heaven, and she meets St. Peter, and, and she asks him, how do I get in? And, and Peter says, all you have to do is spell one word correctly. And she's like, what's the word? The word's love. And she spells it, and she gets in. Then years later, uh, St. Peter comes to her and says, would you, just for a time, take over my duty at the gate and watch it for a bit? And much to her surprise, while she's watching the gate, her husband comes in shows up. And she asks him, how you been? And he says, really well, actually. You know that beautiful young nurse that was looking after you while you were dying? Well, I married her. And, and then I won the lottery. And, and you know that small house we were living? We moved out of that. We moved into a great big house. And, and she and I were actually at Whistler when I had the accident that led me to here. I'm so glad I'm here in heaven. How do I get in? And she says, well, you got to spell one word. And she, he says, what's that word? Czechoslovakia, she replies. <laughs> it's, 
It's, uh, it's so interesting. One researcher did a study on comparison at Stanford, folks comparing themselves to other people. And their idea was that, that going in, their thesis was that unhappy people tend to compare up. They compare themselves to people who have more than them or are doing better or are more successful or so on. And that happy people compare down. They compare themselves to people who have less than them or are doing more poorly than they are and so on. And that makes them happy. What they discovered is that happy people don't compare at all. They don't don't compare up, they don't compare down. They actually use uh, deeply held internal values as their yardstick for how they're doing. And they take pleasure in other people's successes. If other people win, they go yes, and they show concern for other people's failures. Ever found yourself feeling jealous or envious? You see someone in your life or in your class or at your workplace and and they're prospering or doing great and it starts to eat away at you. And you know, rather than getting alone with God and say, God, I'm, I'm really jealous. Lord, I bring you this jealousy and I bring you this hatred that I have towards this other person that I can't stand. Help me, Lord, actually to rejoice when somebody else rejoices and to mourn when somebody else mourns. And Saul doesn't do this ever with his jealousy of David. He never prays it. He never mourns it. He never brings it to God. He doesn't process it or pray it through. Now, here you are. You're, you're here at church this morning. What do, what do we tend to do? I think sometimes we think that, that um, being nice is a spiritual gift. And, and so what, what do we do with our negative feelings about somebody, our jealousy or our envy, even in church life? What do we do with those feelings? We tend to push them down and press them away. And then when we see that person at coffee, we just kind of pretend they're not there, right? We, we behave all sweet and nice, like nothing's wrong, like everything's great. But what you haven't done is you haven't brought it to God or, and, and been reflective about it. Or, or maybe what it's like is that you may be singing songs in worship, and you're singing songs about his great love. But inside, truth be told, you're mad at God. God's done, done something in your mind, and, and you're so hurt over it, and you're mad at him, but, but you're not going to tell him, and like God doesn't know, right? You're singing to him, but you're angry at him. Or maybe you're singing about the love of God, and maybe you're singing about the, the great power of God, but your whole life is fear. You're make, making decisions based on fear all the time, not based on, on God. And so parents, raising your kids, and, and we've got a, a great responsibility to raise our kids well, but, but you're pushing and driving your children out of fear, not out of kind of a healthy parental love for them. We, you know, we, often, we often make decisions at our, our work or about our career based on fear, not out of wisdom, and de- definitely not out of a, a seeking after God. Or maybe you know what it's like to give yourself sexually to someone or, or, or get into a relationship out of fear. You tell yourself it is better than being alone. Or maybe you know what it's like to be in conflict with someone. And you know you need to say hard things, but because of fear you don't engage them because you don't want to risk them not liking you. And so you shrink back and you, you, you don't tell the whole truth and you tell what we might call the, the half-truth, or really what it is, is the half-lie. And sometimes we, we do know God's will, and we, 
we kind of know it intuitively, but it's too emotionally painful to follow him down that road. It requires too much of this, this reflection and, and self-awareness. So what happens is we live with one appearance on the surface and another reality underneath that just doesn't correspond with what others see. And it, it happens very slowly and over a long period of time. You know, for me as a Christian, this whole um, reflection and self-awareness stuff has not been easy for me. Because you know what, what's happened when I try it sometimes is that, that I don't like what I find. <laughs> Down there underneath the surface, there's some stuff I, stuff I don't like about me and stuff I feel bad about. And, and so I, I feel guilty about some of those things. So in, instead of feeling guilty or bad about those things, just avoid them entirely, right? Um, as... as the mantra of a teenager, deny everything, right? Just deny they're there. You know what the key is? I want to give you some hope here, folks. Is, is, I mean, staying in touch with God and staying in touch with yourself requires silence and solitude. And it's not just paying attention to, to what's going on in life around you. It, it's, it's also paying attention to what's going on inside you, paying attention to the motives inside. You need to ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? What are the, the feelings I've got about what's going on and what are my thoughts on the inside? And it's about wrestling with these things. See, if, if you can't be in touch, you cannot be in touch with God if you are not in touch with yourself. And Saul's not in touch with himself. He's full of illusions. He's having a prayer life that's an illusion. You see, he's presenting a me to God that is not the real me. It's not really true. You might know what it's like, you know. Many times we, I, I think, present ourselves to God, and it's not the real us that we're presenting to God. Subconsciously, we are trying to present ourselves to him in a way that would be favorable, where, where he'd like us or be proud of us. I know I've done it and, it, and again, it's not as if he doesn't know the real us. Why are we pretending? And then what happens is, our spirituality becomes an unreality. You see, you're not in reality if you're not in touch with what is going on inside of you. Because like in Saul's case, we're unaware because we don't have time to reflect. We keep ourselves so busy. Let me say it again. We need silence and solitude to connect with God. We need silence and solitude in order to connect with ourselves. To know what we're thinking and feeling and to know what we're thinking and feeling about. It takes silence and solitude to tame the monsters of what we might call our false selves. Take silence and, and solitude to, to draw us out because the, the pressure of our culture and, and of our past is so great to conform us to something that is not true of us. To live on this superficial level and, and, and to conform ourselves to, to other people's expectations like Saul did. You know, it takes a, a tremendous amount of silence and solitude to be reflective and self-aware. And you never see Saul, unlike David, spending time in reflection and self-awareness, in silence and solitude. He just doesn't do it. David, his, if you read his life, his life is full of it, but not Saul. Saul, you see him doing a lot, but you'll never see Saul writing poems or, or music or, or psalms for worship. Or, or pouring out his fears or his brokenness or his conflict before God. And here's the thing. David has the same conflicts as all of us. Saul, same conflicts as Saul. 
And here's the thing, if I look at Saul's conflicts, I see them and I can relate to them in my own life as well. But the different difference was that David was aware of them and he poured them out before God, he prayed them, and he wrestled them. He was not evading them, but, but Saul is just unaware. He's, he's unreflective and he keeps moving along for God and as a result, he makes a decision. And, and we can all make that decision, can't we, so easily because most of the people in our culture are not self-aware or reflective. We can so easily say, you know what, I'm just going to live on autopilot and I'm going to just keep moving along and, and be busy. That is the first lesson from Saul. He says no to reflection and self-awareness. The second thing Saul does is he says no to cultivating his personal relationship with God. He doesn't spend the energy or the time to cultivate that relationship. Um, now Saul had a, a, a good relationship with God to start. He had a good start with God. God touched his life early on. He begins very humble and he receives this profound blessing from God. The Holy Spirit, Spirit comes on him in this wonderful story and, and Saul is made king. So he, he gets this grace and, he, and this mercy, but then he doesn't do anything with it. He, he doesn't actively or consciously cultivate or, or develop or nurture his personal relationship with, with God. He just kind of slides along on cruise control. There's just no in, in indication in his life, at least in Scripture, of him cultivating that relationship. He doesn't seem to have a, a hidden life with God. We're all meant to, to have a hidden life with God, not just a public life life with God. But there doesn't seem to be a hidden life when nobody's looking, unlike David. Instead, what does Saul want? Um, Saul wants to be known by people. He's concerned about what others are thinking of him and, and how others are, are viewing him, and he really, what he wants, he wants the benefits from God. He wants what God can give him. He wants the blessings. Um, he listens to God only as much as it directly benefits him. But when listening to God becomes problematic, he just ignores it. Some of us can relate. We do this in our relationships. It's called selective hearing. My wife tells me often that I have selective hearing. You hear half of it and you forget the rest. But look at verse 22 when God speaks to him. I mean, these are poignant and sharp words, not just in, in, in Saul's life, but in, in our lives today. When God says in verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices more than obeying the voice of the Lord? It's like God is saying to Saul, don't you get it? Do you think God delights in having you just do all this religious activity? The word, the word obey and listen here in that, in that line are the same. And, and Saul's not listening, for to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of lambs. That's the exact same verse that Jesus quotes to the Pharisees. Look at verse 23. God says, for rebellion is like the sin of divination. He says, you're in, the, you're in rebellion. Saul thinks he's obeying everything, and, and, and then God compares it, quite brutally, really, to the sin of witchcraft. It's like you're going to a, a witch or a psychic for direction. And God says, goes on to say, your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. So he gets this really harsh word from God, and it doesn't even make Saul blink. I mean, he repents, but it's kind of half-repentance. And it's short-lived, and he just goes back to how he lived before, and he's not asking the question, how does this apply to me? What is God saying to me? And, and, and folks, isn't this kind of the, the kind of rut that you and I can get into in our walk with God? I mean, even this morning, 
we can be sitting and listening to this, this message, this sermon, and you're like going, that's a clever thought. I like that example. I like Derwin's opener today. I wish he'd used a film clip like last week. I mean, there, there could be that kind of going on, right? There's this, what are you doing? You're kind of evaluating. You're kind of thinking through, you know, what, you know, and you can read books, and you can go to church and hear talks, but what you can be doing is evaluating and not listening. Is this sermon clever or boring or interesting to me or not, or could I share this w- with a friend? You're focusing on other things than cultivating your relationship with God. You know, a personal relationship with God, asking God, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? It's incredibly personal, the relationship that God is after with us. What is God saying to me? How is the living God coming to me versus it's just kind of out there? You see, it's, it's incredibly easy to have a, a Christianity that's, that's intellectual, it's just stuck in your head. I'm learning, I'm gaining, but it's not experiential. It's really not in the heart. And, and, and the difference between David and Saul was David was always asking the question, God, what are you saying to me? And Saul always avoided getting personal with God. I feel like uh, for the last number of years, as I've been seeking personally to pursue a more holistic, emotionally healthy life with God, I've seen how it can be tempting to only listen to God from the outside, through other people, through, through books and through talks, through voices of my friends, through my, even the voices in my small group, uh, listening to scripture, listening to sermons. But, uh, but I'm uh, realizing more and more and more that I'm called to pay attention both to God on the outside as he speaks to us through those modes, but also God as he relates inside of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have the indwelling Christ in us. When we give our lives to God, he, he births his life in us through his spirit. And he's wanting to work in us in, in, in all these different ways. He wants to speak to us in, in all of our emotions and all, all of our, our life. Not just this outside in, but also from the inside out. Um, had a song kind of on repeat in my head in recent weeks. You ever have that happen to you? Sometimes it's, it's not so great when it's a song like Achy Breaky Heart or, you know, uh, Call Me Maybe or something like that, right? Like one of those songs, and you're just like, please deliver me, right? Um, this, song, this song has been really good, actually. It's, it's a song that's come to mean a lot to me. It's a song by the House Fires. It's called You're a Good, Good Father. And it's a song of worship talking to God, talking about how great a father he is. And I found in, in days recently where I feel like my life has been overloaded and a little bit stressed and stretched i've i've played that song more times than i can count and just had that song repeat and repeat and repeat so if it's in my head a lot it's because i'm playing it a lot and uh, i love it because in the song itself it reminds me that god is not just like god almighty out there and far away remember the song bet midler sang years ago uh at a distance god is watching us from a distance right and some of us have that image that that's what our relationship with God is, is all about. But, but this song reminds me that God is a good, good father. That's personal. That's an intimate description of a relationship that God wants to have with each one of us. And check out the, the song's first line. I think it's quite profound. He says, I've, I've heard a thousand stories of what others think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. Folks, I can tell you uh, a thousand 
different times in a thousand different ways that God loves you, that he has a great plan for your life, that he wants to do awesome things in you and through you. I can tell you that, that in him you're never, ever, ever alone. But it, but it matters far more when you hear it for yourself, in your own heart. When God speaks that truth to you and begins to, you begin to hear his tender whispers in the night, those are the kind of voices that will transform you from the inside out. God speaking to you is meant to come from the outside and the inside. And if we can learn anything from Saul, is that we need to cultivate this personal relationship with God. Not just asking God for stuff. Not just treating God. I, I think many of us treat God like an object. Like an it. A thing. When he wants to be our father. We need to slow down in order to be with God. You may find it hard to believe. Maybe you don't find it that hard, but I, I find it a real challenge in my own life to cultivate a personal relationship with God. It requires a daily decision on my part to slow down and to stop and to be with Him because the world's just going a thousand miles an hour. Right? Pastor John Orford once asked Dallas Willard, um, you know, out of all the spiritual practices that you could practice, what's the What's the most important? Dallas Willard is this kind of this spiritual guru that a lot of us look up to. He's a wise, wise, was a wise, wise man. And, and Dallas told John this. He says, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then John asks, okay, what's next? <laughs> and, and what we're talking here is, is cultivating a contemplative spirituality. By, by the way, folks, that's just a fancy way of saying learning to be with God. Creating space in your life so that you can encounter God. It, it's it's kind of one of those words that is taken on all... Don't, don't type in what does contemplation mean on the internet. You get funky funky descriptions and, and weird and, and it'll lead you like a whole different way. It's sur, sur, just simply learning to, to slow down so that you can experience God for yourself. That you can learn to to be with him so that you can learn to, to discover that the God we sing about, uh, his, get, taking the love that we, and the power that we sing about and, and learning them for yourself. It's going to require cultivating that life. And, and, and part of the theme of what we're talking about these next eight weeks is actually you taking responsibility for, for your life in God and, and not blaming. You notice uh, that, that Saul's a, a big blamer, isn't he? I mean, he blames a lot of people why he's messing up, but you're meant to take responsibility for your life in God and to cultivate your per personal relationship with God. And here's the thing, folks. Nobody can do that for you. This is a journey you have to, to take initiative. We have small groups. We have a church. There's resources around, but, but it's your responsibility, and that's a big theme for us this fall. Perhaps a start for you today would simply to be saying, I'm going to give 10 minutes of my day to, to, to read a devotional, to, to actually... Walk this out. I'm going to try and, and, and build in some times into my life. As busy as it is, I want to stop. And, and what I love about this is the first two minutes, is you're just told to, to be silent. <laughs> just take two minutes and be silent. Shut the brain and, and attend to God. I invite you into this process. Let me say this. Uh, this, this is just a book. It's not the whole Christian life. But it's a piece. And that's what God is, is bringing 
to us right now, and I, I, would, I would challenge us, encourage us to receive what he has for us this fall. And so I want to invite the worship team up, and we're going to take just two or three minutes, and we're going to experience together silence and solitude. And I hope this won't be the only silence and solitude you experience for the next week. Some of you, you haven't stopped and, and been, been in this place of quiet for a long, long time. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's maybe even open your hands uh, upwards as a symbol of, of prayer, a symbol of receiving God's presence in your life. I want to ask you, what is God bringing to your attention this morning? You know, the Lord delights in your listening. <laughs> it gives God delight that you listen to him. How, how much does that say about how much we matter to him? That he delights when you listen to him. And so I'd like us to give God delight just by listening before him. Let's do that.